reading this morning is from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard many from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. In every every institution, every group, every generation has defining characters. These people who, uh, through their influence and through their impact in the world, affect and change uh, whatever it is that they have influence over. Most of you know I'm a big fan of baseball. I was at the... uh, uh, last Cardinals game we won for the last few days anyway on Thursday. And uh, I usually get to go to a couple of games a year, and I try to watch as many Cardinals games as I can on TV. Um, I've been a big fan of baseball since I was a kid. And probably nobody defines baseball more than Babe Ruth. Now, in 1919, this is just before Babe Ruth came on the scene, the Chicago White Sox threw the World Series in favor of the Reds uh, after essentially all the players had bet against themselves. Uh, And uh, the result of that was that uh, every player in the White Sox team was banned from baseball, 
But uh, the, the more lasting result was for a couple of years there, remember this is before, before uh, uh, games were televised, uh, for a couple of years there, there were hardly any ticket sales at all. Americans were really uninterested in baseball after the 1919 World Series. If it was going to be that corrupt, if the, if the players were going to throw the game, they really weren't interested. But then came Babe Ruth, who some historians think if there hadn't been players like Babe Ruth and Jackie Robinson and Willie Mays and a couple of, the other, of these others who came in that period, there would have been uh, very little interest in baseball today. He became one of baseball's first superstars who uh, began to chase and set records and became someone that people were excited to follow. And when I was a kid, not in 1919, uh, but in 1998, when I was eight years old, Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire were chasing each other for the home run record that was uh, first set by Roger Maris. And uh, McGuire won in 1998. You might remember that. He hit, I think, 70 home runs. And I remember as a kid how exciting that was to watch Mark McGuire, this St. Louisan, this, this hometown hero, chase this home run record. I even got to be at a game in 1998. I was eight years old, uh, where he hit one of his home runs. I think it was like 45 or 46 or something. It was early in the season. And uh, I remember how amazing it was to witness a Mark McGuire home run during the big home run uh, chase, and that was really what got me interested in baseball. Uh, at eight years old, there's not really a whole lot of concept of the rules of the game or, or how this sport lines up with other sports. There was just something really exciting happening, and I wanted to be a part of it. Now, the unfortunate thing for McGuire and Sosa is that they were both uh, mired in a steroid scandal some years later. Uh, Mark McGuire, um, for example, called the wife of Roger Maris, who's still alive, uh, before he went on to announce that he had used steroids, uh, he wanted to tell her first. He felt like she should be the first to know. So McGuire might have an asterisk next to his name, but he still, right for good or bad, defined his generation in the sport of baseball. Well, Paul was a very educated religious leader. He was a Pharisee. A Pharisee uh, was one of two dominant religious parties. Uh, sometimes they're actually referred to as political parties, actually, Pharisees and Sadducees because of the influence that they had in their culture at the time. Uh, Paul was a part of the Pharisees. He's a very educated man. Pharisees were sort of defined by the rigid and legalistic interpretations of the Torah and the rigid and legalistic applications of the Torah. For uh, Pharisees, following God meant following the rules, and it meant following the rules to an absolute T. Uh, Adam Hamilton, A Church of the Resurrection, one of the, one of the uh, examples that he likes to give of the Pharisees is how they would go to their gardens and their homes and they would cut every tenth leaf from their garden as tithing 10%, right? Because they absolutely wanted to make sure that 10% of anything they produced went to God. It was very strict, very legalistic, very much making sure that they followed the rules to a T. That was Paul. Another very important characteristic of the Pharisees is that they worked very hard to exclude anybody who didn't look like them, anybody who didn't believe like them, anybody who didn't dress like them. Their rigid and strict way of viewing the rules was less about trying to follow the rules and more about creating rules that were hard for other groups of people to follow, namely the Gentiles. For the Pharisees, they lived their whole lives meeting these rules to a T and made it impossible for the Gentiles to ever experience God's grace. So that's who Paul was. He was this very same class of people who clashed frequently with Jesus. When you read the New Testament, right, we see this as a frequent foil of Jesus, the Pharisees. He clashes with them all the time. In one instance, the Pharisees have caught a woman in adultery. And, of course, she's broken a rule. 
So they think they've got him now. Jesus, what do we do with her? And, and Jesus says, he without sin cast the first stone. And another instance, Jesus is sitting kind of off in the distance and he's at, looking at the offering horn in Jerusalem. This is a giant brass uh, bowl, for lack of a better term. Uh, and uh, this is where the offering was placed. And, and what would... What would not uncommon for people of the day would be to convert their money down to the lowest denominator. It would be like if you went to farmers and merchants right before service, if they were open, and took your, your tithe for the week and converted it all to pennies and took the pennies out of the rolls and poured the pennies into the plate that everybody could see how much you were giving because that was the whole point. <clears throat> and so they would come in with these big sacks of, of low denomination coins and would actually pour them into the horn. And they would clang off of the brass and make all kinds of noise. So everyone had to look at just how faithful and pious this guy was being. But Jesus said, if you remember this story, that the one, the woman, the widow, who came in with just a couple of pennies and quietly laid them in the, in the pot and walked away. She was the one who had great faith. Because for the Pharisees, it really wasn't about faith. For the Pharisees, it was about appearances for the Pharisees, it was about uh, belonging to the right tribe, to the right club, being the right people, and less so about following God. So that's Paul. Paul, arguably, is one of the most influential and defining people of faith in history. We read his texts frequently. Our Christian faith is in a great way shaped by what he wrote. But before Paul was the Christian leader that he became... He was a persecutor of Christians. Paul went from village to village to find anybody, anybody who might follow Jesus Christ because they were committing the most egregious of all crimes for a Pharisee. They were welcoming the people from outside of their community into their fold. See, the followers of Jesus, they called themselves the way at that time. The word Christian hadn't come around yet. The followers of Jesus were going out into the Gentile communities. And they were going out to these people who were different, who looked different, who dressed different, who behaved different. And they said, we want you to know about God. And the Pharisees said, hold on a minute now. We don't associate with that kind. We don't talk to that kind. At least of all, we don't share our God with that kind. And so Paul is, is furious about this idea that these followers of the way, not only do they not have a strict enough view of the Torah, but they're welcoming these outsiders from other countries into their faith. And so Jesus encounters Paul on the road to Damascus. We have this incredible story. Paul is on his way to Damascus to do what Paul does, to round up the followers of the way, the early Christians, to wrap them up and take them to Jerusalem, and if they throw a fight, to kill them. But Paul experiences a blinding light, and he hears a voice, and the voice says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Actually, he uses Saul. Saul has two names, as you know. Sometimes we say that his name was changed. There's Actually, no point in Scripture where that happens. There's no moment where the name is changed. Uh, it was very, very common for uh, men of that era to have two names, one in Greek, one in Hebrew, especially educated, wealthy people like Paul, uh, because he would have spent a great deal of time both with Greeks and with Hebrews. So Saul, the Hebrew name was being used here. Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, and Saul says, who are you? And the voice says, I'm Jesus. I'm the one you're persecuting. I'm the one you're harming. And I've, I've come here, and I'm going to give you more instructions later. And then Paul realizes he's blind. This is a profound moment for Paul. For most of Paul's life, this is an incredibly privileged individual. For most of Paul's life, 
He has not needed anything from anybody. Paul was born to educated, wealthy parents. Paul lived his life where he was always the smartest person in the room. He was always the richest guy in the village. He was always the most powerful man at the table. Paul was always the one in charge. Paul was always the one who had the power. And now Paul was lying on the side of the road blind and completely helpless. And he's led by people he doesn't know, strangers, into Damascus. They could have done anything at this moment. And they sit him down and they let him rest. And then God speaks to another disciple, Ananias. And I love this moment because God um, almost seems to try to like butter him up a little bit. God says, I need you to go to this guy, right? I need you to go to this man and I need you to heal him. Uh, and his name's Saul, by the way. And I need you to heal him and, and put you. And he says, hold on a minute, Saul, I know who that is. This is the guy who's persecuting Christians. We're expecting him. The chief priests gave him these letters and gave him this authority to come and arrest us. I know who he is. I know why he's here, and I know what he's come here to do. And God says, well, tough. I need you to go lay your hands on him and heal him. Now, this is where Ananias and I are different people. Uh, Ananias is a lot closer to God than, than I think I should be, but uh, I would have a really hard time doing what Ananias did. I would have a really hard time going to somebody who had used their power and their privilege to harm other people who had less, who had less power. I would have trouble going to someone who persecuted people of faith simply because and especially because they reached out to people who were different. I, I would have a real hard time with this, restoring his sight and giving him his strength back, giving him back his power. I might say to God, God, I think Paul is in the best place he can be right now. He can't hurt anybody. He can't touch anybody. He can't even see anybody. Paul is right where he needs to be. But Ananias goes, because Ananias is a little bit more the way uh, Jesus was. I'm a little bit more like Jonah was, right? The one who sits in the corner and says, let's God, God's wrath come down on these evil people. Uh, instead of uh, let's God's grace come and be a part of it. Ananias goes, and this is profoundly incredible, he places his hands on Saul and he calls him brother. Brother Saul. He places his hands on him and it says scales fell from his eyes and he could see again. He was restored. And the first thing he does after three days of being blind, after three days of, of not eating, he didn't go eat really fast, he didn't go look at something beautiful. He got up and he was baptized. At that moment, he knew that he needed to experience the grace of God. His life had been transformed. One of my favorite things that Paul has to say later on is that when we become a Christian, who we were is not compatible with who we are. And nobody knows that better than Paul because who Paul is today would have been killed by who Paul was three days before. That's how profound Paul was transformed and changed. Ananias was faithful. Ananias took a great risk. We're in a series right now talking about risk, talking about stepping out boldly for the gospel. Ananias took a great risk in healing Paul, a great risk to himself and also his people. But Paul, too, took a very unique risk. Paul gave up his identity. Paul gave up, Paul gave up uh, his family. Paul gave up his position in society. Paul gave up his privilege. Paul gave everything up that he could more closely follow and align with God. Paul says that the Christian life has changed, and that's something that he would know a great deal about. 
This morning's story, as I said, is a story of challenging one's own identity, one's own ideas, and even one's own beliefs, and desiring to have them better line up with God. Now, Paul and the Pharisees, they had made a great mistake, and that was sort of digging themselves into a pit of their traditions and their, and their policies and their procedures. There wasn't anything wrong with any of the Pharisees' traditions, per se. These were things that helped them be closer to God. But that they stood on their line and they said, God, come here. This is where you need to be. God, come here to our traditions. God, come here to our community. God, come here to Jerusalem. God, come here to our people and stay here with us. But the call from God is, come to me. Your traditions, your beliefs, your ideas, the people that you associate with, the people that you love, that's where I am, God says. Come to me. And that's, that's the part that Paul had a hard time with until his conversion. Around our world and even in our communities, voices are crying out to be heard. There seem to be irreconcilable divides amongst people. We back into our corners and we say, these are my people, this is my space, and you can't touch it, and so too do the ones on the other side. We make idols out of our tribes and we sit on our side of the line, but Paul teaches us something. Paul teaches us first and foremost to be vulnerable. We talk a lot about Ananias because I think we can identify with Ananias. In the story, we're not usually Saul, right? We're not usually the the persecutor. Usually we're Ananias, right? That's how we identify ourselves, rightly or wrongly. That's the person we identify with, the one who is called to go out to the person who is evil. But Saul was also putting himself at a great risk by following. He was blind now, and he was going into Damascus, into the very city where people were waiting, afraid of him. Anything could have happened over those three days. I believe God has a sense of humor, and I believe that God sometimes can have a bit of a firm hand. I think the three days was intentional. Think about this for a minute. Paul, sit there in fear for a little bit, right? Just like these people have been waiting for you. Anything could have happened to Paul, but Paul went faithfully because God asked him to do. God asked him to go to Damascus, so that's where he went. And of course, Ananias was extraordinarily faithful in going to Paul. Paul, as I said, would become one of the most important and defining characters in Christianity. Now, Paul's writings were a little bit different than the other apostles. Paul didn't walk and talk with Jesus like the other apostles, uh, like James and John. So while James and John wrote down the stories of Jesus, Paul wrote down the stories of the early Christians. That was Paul's area of expertise. He was taking the gospel, taking these stories from these apostles who he actually had the opportunity to get to know in many cases, And they would tell him the stories of Jesus, and then he would write them down again. In Romans, in his letter to the church in Rome, in Ephesus, right? In Corinthians, in each of these books of the Bible written by Paul, essentially what he's doing is writing to churches and saying, this is what the gospel says, and this is what you're supposed to do about it. That's why his writings are so important to us as Christians. That's why Paul is such a big deal, because really, Paul wrote kind of the first sermons, if you would, except for Jesus's, right? He was the first one to sort of interpret this new found faith in God. And it all happened because of transformation. Now we've been talking about risk. Our first week we talked about Peter. Peter stepped out of the boat. He got into the water with Jesus. He put himself physically at great risk. He put himself in a lot of physical danger in order to follow God. (coughs) And then we talked about Abraham. Abraham was asked to sacrifice his son. We learned in that week that, that God's continuous revelation teaches us that that, uh, that that wasn't God's plan for him, but God needed for him to see this and experience this so that he could understand what God's plan was for him. God spares his son Isaac, and Isaac goes on to do absolutely extraordinary things. Abraham risked what was most dear to him. 
Last week was Jonah. That's our bush today, right? It's starting to wither, and I was hoping it would wither more uh, by this week, but it hasn't yet. It's, it's being very stubborn. Uh, but Jonah, right, he sits under the bush, and, and it withers away, and, and he's angry with God for withering the bush, and, and God says, Jonah, why are you upset about the bush that you didn't create? Why wouldn't I be upset about the people I've created in Nineveh? And so Jonah is angry with God because he's risked his own safety and doesn't even get to see the fireworks. <coughs> Today is something very, very different. Paul does, risks his own safety, but that isn't the big point. Paul risks his family, but that isn't the big point. Surely Paul has broken some, burned some bridges here. Right? You don't go, to go from being a Pharisee to a Christian like this. You don't go from being a persecutor to the persecuted without losing some people along the way. Paul doesn't get to go back to his family reunions the same way. Paul's circle of friends surely would have been other Pharisees. They're not going to associate with him anymore. But of all of that, the most important thing that Paul sacrificed was his identity. Paul teaches us to be vulnerable in a world that polarizes itself, that separates itself, that says me and my people only, that, that separates and divides us further and further apart. Paul tells us to step across the line, to say, you and I may never see eye to eye, but I want to tell you about this amazing love that I've experienced that is the most important thing in my life. Paul teaches us that perhaps one of the scariest things for us to risk is the idea that who we are today may not be who God is calling us to be. Who we are today might fall short of God's design for us. And that might mean that we have to ask God to transform us and to mold us and to shape us into who God wants us to be. And that's terrifying. I don't know about you, but that's terrifying for me because I'm pretty happy with who I am. I mean, I'm, I'm far from perfect. But, uh, but I'm happy with who I am. I feel good being me. Uh, and that hasn't always been the case. It's taken me a long time to have good self-esteem. I didn't have that in high school or anything. But, but I kind of have good self-esteem now. I feel pretty good about myself. And so it's, it's terrifying to think that I might not be who God has designed me to be. It's a whole lot easier to kind of stand where we are and say, you know, God, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty happy with who I am. So if you could just come over to me, that'd be great. But the call from God is, John, come to me, right? Come to me. Come to where I am. Change who you are. Shape who you are into the image of who I am. That is the Christian life, and it's terrifying. We're in this series about risk. We're talking about what it means to step out in faith for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I really can't think of things riskier than the willingness to risk it all, even at the very core of who we are, in order to better follow God. Today, this story tells us that God calls us to transformation. As Paul says, Paul's the, our hero for today, so we use his own quote, when we become Christians, when we live our lives as Christians, the old is incompatible with the new. Think about that for a moment, incompatible. That doesn't just mean we're slightly different than before. Or because we're Christians, now we get a haircut, right? Or, or now we, we change our, our look a little bit, or we wear a special badge on our shirt, right? That means the old is incompatible with the new. Who we are doesn't work anymore with who we once were. That's how much Christ transforms us. As evidence in Paul, for Paul, as I said, the rigid, legalistic interpretations of Scripture were what Paul was all about. And he changed so much so that he actually sort of became on the other side, kind of disliked by a lot of Christian leaders because of his sort of laissez-faire approach to the Gentiles. For Peter and others, they felt that the Gentiles, if they were going to convert to Christianity, needed to also convert to our culture. 
Our culture meaning the culture of Jerusalem. They need to wear their hair the way we wear our hair. They need to dress the way we dress. They need to speak our language. They need to learn Hebrew, right? Paul was, was really fond of what's called the Septuagint, this, this uh, Greek translation of the Bible. Many of the apostles were opposed to that. They need to learn Hebrew, and they need to read it in Hebrew. <clears throat> Paul was fine with all of that. Paul was sort of, the most, uh, was sort of known for that, his, his desire to see the people experience God, even if that meant that they were going to have their own traditions. Paul sort of set the ball rolling on something that became sort of a, a character of Christianity, this idea of sort of stealing other people's uh, traditions and making them our own, uh, for better or worse, right? Uh, German tribes uh, used candles and ever- evergreen trees to signify the longer days starting after the 21st, and uh, Christians said, hey, I like that. Let's make that about the birth of Jesus, right? I mean, we've been doing that for centuries. And it all starts with Paul, who says, you know what, Gentiles, you can keep your traditions, but what I want you to change about yourself is your faith in God. I want you to become who God has called you to be. And this is a huge thing for Paul because Paul doesn't change his traditions. Paul maintains for the rest of his life this very rigid and strict view of the Old Testament. Paul keeps every one of those traditions. He keeps to the ritual cleansing. He keeps to the holidays. He keeps to the dietary laws. He keeps every single line of the Old Testament that he had been so firmly and rigidly lined up with. But his transformation changes from this notion that everybody needs to do the things the way I do them into the most important thing people need to know is that God loves them. And I think that the reason Paul was okay with this is because as a Pharisee, Paul believed that these people needed to get their act together before they come to God. They need to get all their ducks in a row and get all their dots eyed and T's crossed. When Paul experienced the transformative grace of God for himself, he realized that it's not us who saves people. It's not our traditions, it's not our rules, it's not even our church that saves people. What saves people is God. And what we need to do is bring them to God and let God be the one who transforms them into the image of the very one who created them. Paul experienced it, so he believed it could happen in the lives of the Gentiles. And so he went for the rest of his life until he was ultimately martyred for his faith to share this gospel of Jesus Christ with the world. No longer was he sharing the rule book. He was sharing the love of God. Friends, you might be very different than me, but again, I I can't think of many things scarier than that God might ask me to be someone very different than I am today. That God may not be done with me yet, that I might still have some transforming to go with. And that might be true for all of us too. We might be a little scared that God might actually transform us if that's what we ask God to do. But my prayer for us this week is that we would pray earnestly to God about how God might transform us, how God might mold us and shape us and make us into the image of our own Creator. It's only then, I believe, that we can truly be Christ representatives in the world and be the ones who define our generation according to God's design for the world. Amen.